This is Exodus 14, 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he, Pharaoh, made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them at the sea by Pi-ha-haroth in front of Baal-saphon. Again, this is why I didn't make y'all read that. That's 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 quite a word. All right. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there the cloud and the darkness, there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained." But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, and the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word and that you've given it to us because you love us. And I pray that you would help us to see now um, your love in this passage and your love for people who are needy. And we pray and ask all these things in the name of the one who is love, the Lord Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. All right. Um, to kind of set this up, I want you to think about... Um, I want you to think about this question. What are you afraid of? Um, Because that is a key. The word fear and afraid pops up over and over in this passage. It's a very key theme that we see kind of repeated. And it made me think of some of y'all know I'm like a big. I love listening to podcasts. And uh, one of my favorites is called This American Life. And it's just random stories of things that happen in the United States. And one of them happened in Damascus, Arkansas. I'm sure Grace James can tell you all about it, but I'm going to tell you tonight. She's our fellow, or, uh, resident Arkans. Do you call her an Arkansasian? Arcanian? What? Are- Arkansian. There we go. She's our resident Arkansian. A what? Arcan- <laughs> I, I don't even know. Okay. <laughs> Coach me later. <laughs> um, so, I don't know if you knew this, but in 1980, the state of Arkansas almost completely exploded. Do you know this? In Damascus, Arkansas, there was a, um, a Titan II missile with the largest nuclear warhead in the world strapped to the top of it in, uh, in Damascus, Arkansas. Um, to, to give you an idea of how powerful this um, missile was in the silo, um, it was... It was able to unleash the power of all the bombs ever dropped in World War II, including the atom bomb, times three. That's how big this bomb is. So, um, in Damascus, Arkansas, is where, which is like population 347, just kind of rural out in the middle of nowhere. And you really wouldn't even notice that this missile silo is anywhere because you have to go through all these gates and chain link fences to get there. And then when you get there, you just see kind of a concrete slab because it's basically a building that's like uh, flipped upside down and like goes straight into the ground. It's 12 stories deep. And uh, the only thing that's in this concrete slab, like underneath it that has like little antennas and stuff popping out of it is a command center on one side. Like when you go down the ladder, you get down there, you go to the left, there's a command center that's a three story tall like bunker command center. This is during the Cold War, okay? And then if you go down the right hall, you walk into a 12-story tall bullet chamber, basically, that is filled with the Titan II missile uh, with a nuclear warhead strapped on top of it. So the story that I listened to begins with a, uh, a young man named Jeff Plum. Jeff was 19, okay? He's like, so he's like a freshman guy, all right? And Jeff's job was to do, uh, he was someone who was being trained to do maintenance on uh, these missiles because 
they, uh, the Titan II has uh, liquid fuel, which meant that it, it was both really uh, easily unsettled and required a lot of attention. And so Jeff and his instructor, uh, who's a man in his 20s named David Powell, they go to, uh, they go to the silo on uh, September 30th, 1980. They get there and they walk, he, he describes walking in and he said it really is like look, seeing a 12 foot or a 12 story tall bullet in a chamber. And they had to, uh, they had to take off a big like screw or bolt that was on top of, uh, of this missile silo and refuel some of it because the fuel pressure had gone down. So they get, they go through all the like security to get down there. They're finally ready to go and do it. And they realize that the, the specific tool that they're supposed to use to take that bolt off so that they can refuel, they've left it in their truck. And his buddy, David Powell is just like, it's fine. Like this happens all the time. I've got another tool. It's a big socket wrench and we can just use that. He's like, okay. So they get on like what kind of looks like, I'm imagining like a window washer scaffolding that just kind of like elevates them up um, to the side of this missile. And they're like 80 feet up in the air and they get to this big giant like gas, basically like a gas cap that you would have on your car. And they open it up and they open it with this socket wrench and it's a big five pound socket that they're holding on to. And David like finishes taking off the cap and he goes and he hands it to Jeff. He's like, do you have it? He's like, yeah, I've got it. And he hands it to him and he drops it. And this like heavy tool goes over the side of the scaffolding. It actually, the way they described it is there was like only one part in between the silo and the scaffolding that they were on. And there's usually like a rubber thing that's in between there that kind of keeps anything from dropping down. It, 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 they had just like been there for so long and been taking care of it for so long that that thing had just worn away. And the thing bounces on the ground and just goes whoop, like right through this, like this slot, this tiny little slot. It falls 80 feet, hits the ground, and just happens to bounce at like the particular angle that it would go straight back into the side of this missile that's holding rocket fuel. And a huge leak is just like, gashed in the side of this tank and now it's spewing toxic very unstable rocket fuel everywhere and the biggest warhead nuclear warhead in the world is sitting on top of this thing so now they have a decision to make what's our story going to be because they go back down um they're in, like, they're in their like, kind of hazmat-looking suit anyway to be in there. They, they get through the like, toxic fumes that are everywhere. They go into the command center, and there's like sirens going everywhere in the command center bunker. And everyone is losing their mind. They're freaking out. What is going on? And the story that they come up with is, we don't know. We just saw like, some vapor begin emitting from the side of the fuselage. And, and they're like, okay. And they're trying to figure it out. And they're going through all of their protocols. So like, okay, when this, all, all the lights and the alarms are going off, when this goes off, we need to do this and it should fix that. When this goes off, we should do this and it fix that. And they're doing all these things and nothing is working. Nothing is working. And finally, their commander, who was like a very intimidating man, who they did not want to disappoint, he comes up to them and he says, you have got to tell me what happened. And David 
just starts weeping. And he says, we hit a massive hole in the side of the fuel tank. And the commander's face just goes white. And they evacuate. They evacuate. They get everyone out in time before the entire thing explodes. Like this huge concrete bunker explodes. They find the nuclear warhead. After it explodes, they know that they're not, that like the nuclear warhead didn't go off though because they're like still there. They find the nuclear warhead a quarter mile away in a ditch and it didn't go off. If it had gone off, it would have taken out a 400 mile radius around Damascus, Arkansas, which would have killed people in Illinois, Indiana, Missouri, Kentucky. And it almost happened. And a big thing that, like, a huge thing that would have really been a huge problem if they hadn't said anything is they hadn't told the commander the truth. Because what happens, like, push came to shove, and they're finally, 30 minutes into their lie of, like, we don't know what happened, they begin to realize that this thing's about to explode. We need to tell the truth. Because there's something a lot scarier than telling the truth to my commander. Like, telling the truth to your commander is a scary proposition. The largest nuclear warhead in the world is a little bit scarier. Like, which are you going to be afraid of? And being afraid of the wrong thing, being afraid of the wrong thing can, can lead to your demise. And that's what we see in this passage here. Because, first off, I want you to see that Israel desperately needs to be saved, but they're afraid they're so afraid. And in some ways it makes sense that they're afraid. Like God kind of puts them in a, in a difficult spot. In verse 9 it says they encamped by the sea. If you're doing like an ancient military kind of uh, maneuver, putting, all, putting like hundreds of thousands of people with their backs hemmed in by the sea is probably not the best move. So God puts them in a vulnerable place. And then in verse 10, they see Egypt, and you see, you see what it says that they did. They feared greatly. They're terrified. And I want, to, I want you to think, where do you go when you're afraid? Where do you go in your mind? Where do you even go uh, physically when you're afraid? What do you run to? And I would love to say that well, I'm a pastor, that means I always go to God and I always begin praying whenever I'm afraid. But I don't. I don't. And that's not what they do either. Look at where Israel, look at where Israel wants to go. Look at verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This is not going to be the first time that they say something like this. They're, gonna, they're like, we should go back to Egypt. Like, why did you bring us out here? Which, by the way, they're remembering this story completely wrong. They didn't say, leave us alone so that we can serve Egypt. They were crying out to be saved. So they began, they're, they're lying, they're misremembering things, they're afraid, and they want to go back. They want to go back to the place that was, that was horrible for them. To the place of their bondage. They were ready to run back to their old masters. Their old masters who had been committing genocide against them and drowning their little boys. To their masters who had been making them work with no pay. 
and make their own bricks and supplies. They wanted to go back to them. And here's the thing. In the face of fear, we are the same way. We run quickly back to old masters, to things that uh, promise salvation, but actually deliver the opposite. They deliver our destruction. Like, I want you to think about what is it that you run to when you're afraid? For a lot of us, maybe it's just like you begin trusting yourself. I need to take matters into my own hands. So maybe it's a scary social situation. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to self-medicate myself out of this scary situation. Um, Maybe it's a scary class that you've been struggling in. So I am going to work to the bone to figure this out because it's up to me. Maybe it's the way that you feel about how your body looks. And so I'm I'm going to do everything it takes even though it may hurt me and weaken me, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be a certain way and to look a certain way. And we do these things thinking that if I get that grade or if I get that look or that kind of social interaction, then I'll be safe. But we're not. They're old masters. That if you fail them, punish you. Uh, hat tip to Mary Henley on this. This is a great quote she read when she was doing her seminar um, over Winter Conference. And it's been, it's been like running in my head. It's from this old Puritan theologian named Thomas Brooks. He says, Satan promises the best but pays with the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. This is what our old masters do. This is what Egypt is literally going to do. They've got their chariots, which is like the ancient version of a tank. And they're rolling up on Israel. And Israel's ready to go back to them. And that is what our old masters do to us too. These things that promise flourishing, safety, hope, they fail you, they punish you, and they lead to our destruction. But here's the beautiful thing. God loves his people too much to let Satan deceive them this way. He loves them too much to let them go back to their old masters. And it's honestly a little bit surprising because Israel does not come off as like super lovable in this passage. Did you catch it? Like, first, they're sarcastic with God. If you think sarcasm is like a new thing, like, look at the passage. You're like, oh, I guess there's not enough graves in Egypt. We had to come out here. So we have to dig up our own graves here in the wilderness. They get sarcastic. They start lying about what they had actually wanted. They start doubting. They forget the amazing, like, signs and wonders that God has done that we've talked about the last couple of weeks that led to them getting freed in the first place. They have seen the visible presence of God. And not only that, did you see that, like, God is visibly present with them even right now? Like, they get freed out of Egypt, like, where should we go? And, like, there's this huge cloud of pillar and fire, and they're like, I guess we should follow that. That appears to be God. 
And that same pillar of cloud and fire is with them here. In, in fact, it says that it gets between them. It moves from leading Israel to getting behind them and guarding them from Egypt. God is physically manifesting his presence that he is there with them. And this is what we do. There are all kinds of ways that God, he may have shown how he has provided for you. Or you may have like sensed his work in your life before. And I know for me, it is very easy for me to quickly forget that and to begin doubting his motives and fearing things that are bearing down on me. But what does Moses say? Verse 13, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. See, Israel sees that they need help. They're scared. Which I honestly like, you got to just see that if this was a made up story, Israel would have made themselves look a lot better. There is something that's like kind of, there's a ring of truth to this, to stories like this. When you see how messy the people in the Bible are, if you were making up a religion and making up a story about being saved, you'd be like, and we believed perfectly and we were awesome and we never doubted God's goodness. So you should join our religion and believe with us. But just the sheer fact of their messiness and neediness and fear, I think points to that, like, the reason that it's in the story is because like, that's actually how it went down. And Israel needs saving. And God gives it to them. It reminds me of... Don't, any Lion King fans in here? You guys have seen Lion King? Okay, yeah. <laughs> James Ziggy, like immediately raised his hand. That was awesome. Big Lion King fan back there. All right, so Lion King... There's that scene in the elephant graveyard. Simba wasn't supposed to. He's bad Simba. He's a naughty prince. He goes into the elephant graveyard. And uh, he's there with Nala. And they're playing. He's trying to act all tough. But then the hyenas show up. And it gets real. And I, I rewatched the scene. Did you know that Simba actually cuts one of them at one point? He like cuts a... I mean, he was kind of tough. It was pretty cool. Anyway, that was how I spent some time on YouTube today. But I... <laughs> Like Simba cuts one of the hyenas, they get real mad now, and they're bearing down on him in the elephant graveyard, and he has nowhere to go, and so Simba's like, okay, I'm about to just bow up, and he like goes to roar, and it's like, (gasps) you know, it's just like a kind of a little cute lion roar, like a little lion cub roar, and all the hyenas just start dying laughing, and they're like, do it again, And he goes to roar and he opens his mouth and this like bone-shaking, thunderous roar of Mufasa, right? Mufasa like pounces in and saves the day. And the hyenas are, I mean, he's like body slamming stuff. Like it's crazy. Um, He saves them. He saves them. He fights the battle for them. And they like, they do nothing to contribute to it. And that's the picture that we get here. The picture that Israel gets, that Israel, needy Israel, who doesn't have it all together. Israel, <laughs> Moses is like, look, 
be silent. Like, stop freaking out. Be, all you have to do right now, stand firm and be silent. The Lord will fight for you. That's your hope. God is going to fight this battle for you. And the same is true for us. Because we need salvation. We need saving from our fears. And the truth of the gospel is this. Be silent. Stand firm. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. This is the hope. Not that you are going to go and face your fears and battle them on your own. The story of the Bible, the story the Bible is telling is of a God who throughout, the his, throughout history, he intervenes for his people and fights the battle they can't win because he loves them. And it's his grace. And Paul later in the New Testament describes it this way. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. What did he say is not your own doing? For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. You have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift from God, not a result of works. God loves his people too much to let them fight their own battle. He's a good father who enters into the battle for us. And the kind of people that he loves are people like Israel, people like us. People who are anxious and who are stressed and who are afraid about what's going to happen. God enters into the fray for them. And the beautiful thing about this is it means that their salvation from Egypt isn't dependent on them. It's dependent on God by faith alone. Hebrews eleven twenty nine describes the Red Sea crossing this way. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. How did Israel cross over into the promised land? By faith, they cross over. By faith. And this is what I want you to see that I think is so beautiful. Because, like, I mean, the, uh, the mental image of this is kind of cray-cray. That, like, <laughs> you've got the Red Sea and just, like, water starts, like, peeling back. And they begin walking across on dry land. And I'm sure that there's, there were some, like, really faithful Israelites who just, like, went marching through, like, this is awesome. Did you just see what God did? Like, he just rolled back the sea. Like, he's in the pillar of cloud. Like, this is awesome. He's going to wreck Egypt. Like, and they're just, like, marching through the water. But you know there's also 100% there's people who are walking through, like, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. They're walking through the water, freaking out. We're going to die. We are go- there is water on both sides of us. It's going to come crashing out. We're going to die. And both of those people cross over to safety. The person with huge faith. They believe. They have no doubts. They're all in. They cross over into safety. And the person who's a nervous, neurotic wreck and afraid and has like just like this much faith to step onto that dry ground in the middle of the Red Sea. They've got just an iota of faith. They're safe too. 
Because you aren't saved by the strength of your faith. You're saved by the strength of your Savior. That's the story of the Bible. You're not saved by the strength of your faith, but by the strength of your Savior. And God is demonstrating once again in this passage that he is a strong Savior. Um, there was a, uh, a, there's a pastor uh, named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he was actually, he was like a medical doctor. Uh, not like a theological doctor, but like medical doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, really um, influential pastor in Great Britain and in London in the 20th century. So uh, Dr. Jones would say that he would often ask people in Britain around that time if they were a Christian. He'd be meeting with them, are you a Christian? And he said an answer that he would get often, especially during that time in England, was, I'm trying. Like, you know, kind of a polite British answer, like, well, I'm trying to be a Christian. I'm giving it a good old jolly try, you know? Like, and he said, as soon as they said, I'm trying, I knew they didn't get it. You don't try to be a Christian. You don't try to get saved. You don't try. It's, this is, and, and that's so clear in this passage of how Israel is saved. It is something, becoming a Christian the way that salvation works is it's a status change. Like you were in the land of death and now you have crossed over into a land of life by the grace of God. Not because of something that you've tried to do, but because of something that he came and did. It's a status change. It's an adoption. It's why Galatians 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That sounds like slave language. How did he free them who were under the law? Through Jesus, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And that, there's a lot of girls here tonight. I want to tell you why that's awesome for you, adoption as sons. Because the, what Paul is saying here, he's writing to churches, a church that's got male and female people hearing this letter and you're not going to believe this, but in the first century, like guess who would inherit the money when the dad died? You're not going to believe it. The sons, right? That's right. The sons were the inherit that got the inheritance. This is what is like actually really provocative about what Paul is saying. Cause he knows that this is being read to men and women. He's saying you have the same status in Christ. You are an adopted child of the king who gets the full inheritance of the work of your elder brother, Jesus. See, salvation, being a Christian is not something we try to do. It's something that God makes us. He does it because he loves you. He gives it to you by faith. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> how did this happen for us? Like, how, does, how do we see Jesus in this story? And I preached on this um, last semester when I was talking, some of y'all may remember when I was talking about the transfiguration, when um, Jesus and three of his disciples go up on a mountain and the, like Jesus is transfigured and his glory is revealed. This thing happens where Moses, same guy from the other story, Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain with him. Listen to Mark 9.31. 
Behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word departure, they spoke, they spoke of his departure. Moses and Elijah, they're having a conversation. What are they talking about? They're talking about his departure he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The same word, departure, used there, the Greek word, it's the same word that we translate exodus. What are Moses and Elijah talking about? They're talking about Jesus's exodus, which he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Well, what does he accomplish at Jerusalem? What does he do? He goes to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross and he accomplishes the exodus. He's the one who does it. It's his work of salvation. And he holds it out to us by his grace to anyone who would believe. Don't have to earn it. So what? Israel is rescued. Israel is rescued and all they do is they stand still. They stand still and they be quiet and then they walk when they're, when they're, when they're told to walk. And standing still is incredibly difficult. And this isn't, I'm not telling you like you need to let go and let God, like God will take care of you. And what I'm actually telling you what standing still looks like in the Christian faith is it to, it's to stand still and see what God has already accomplished for you. Like when you're afraid, when you're fearing all of this stuff that's pressing in around you, and man, like I'm convinced UT runs on fear. I love UT. But like we run on FOMO here. We run on fear of all kinds of things or fear of not getting the internship or not getting into that Greek organization or not getting into that like club or not getting into that job or not getting into that neighborhood after I graduate that I know that I need to be able to buy a house and so I got to get the kind of job that will help me to buy like we're afraid when all of that's pressing in on you what do we do you stand still and see the work that God has already done for you in Christ if you're his so here's the thing who do you fear because Israel's still afraid at the end of this. Did y'all see that? Look at, uh, at verse 31. Now they're just afraid of something else. Sorry, like pull out your magnifying glass for the passage. Look at verse 31. Thus the, Lord's, uh, thus the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. See, now they're... Now they're not afraid of like telling the commander. Now they're afraid of a nuclear warhead. They're afraid of real power now because they've seen it. They just walked through it. They've seen real power and they're afraid. And the Bible actually tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. If you're going to make sense of the world here, that the way, the, the pathway to wisdom and knowledge is the fear of the Lord, right placed fear. Jesus, Jesus even talks about this. He says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Fear God. Okay, that's kind of a weird idea. But I want to close with this. The kind of fear that I'm talking about it's the kind of fear for someone that you are confident loves you. Like the kind of like fearing the Lord is like fearing someone who has great power 
and demands great reverence and presence. But being confident that they're for you. C.S. Lewis describes it better than I can. I'm reading through the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids. So brace yourself for lots of Chronicles of Narnia references. I'm sorry in advance. Uh, but we read this, uh, this one recently at the Trap House. Whoop, whoop, Trap House. All right. Um, so uh, this is when they're learning about this lion named Aslan. And uh, Mr. And, they're at Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's house in the line, the witch in the wardrobe. And this is the first time that they're hearing about this figure who is the godlike figure of Narnia named Aslan. And um, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are telling a girl named Susan about Aslan. And they say, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? Shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, here's the good news of the gospel. Is that there is only one who deserves our fear. But he is the one who has gone to hell and back to save you. Because he loves you. He loves you too much to fight your own battle. And so what do we do? What Israel does is they worship him. They break into song. The whole, I didn't print off Exodus 15, um, the whole thing. But the whole rest of it, it's like it's a big old song. They start singing because they've been saved. They, they've been saved from all of these horrible masters. And now they've been saved by a good one who loves them. He's going to give himself for them. And what that means is we get to worship. Finally, we get to start worshiping something that's not going to destroy us, but instead promises life. And so they sing, he has become my salvation. That's what they sing. Do you believe that? If so, he's worthy of your life and of your devotion and of your love. So what song are you singing? Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks so much for um, the good news of the gospel, that um, you meet us in our fear, that um, you do not leave us, but you are with us until the end of the age, as you said, Lord Jesus, to your disciples. I pray that we would find hope in that and that we would see your love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.